This is Mr. Lutz, and you are listening to Oral History Class with Mr. Lutz. And in today's episode, we are going to be exploring the early civilizations of the world. So this will be our second and last, believe it or not, exploration episode into period one, which begins with the origins of mankind and uh, ends at about 600 BCE. So, without further ado, we'll go ahead and get into the key concept connections here. So, for today's key concept connection, what we're really focusing on is one key concept, and that's going to be key concept 1.3. So I'll take a moment, I'll read to you guys what we're talking about with Key Concept 1.3, and then what I'll go ahead and do is, like I've tried to establish with you guys, try to connect the Key Concept itself to your textbook reading, either directly or elaborate on some things, and uh, yeah, just really bring those two things together, that is the textbook and the Key Concepts. So, Key Concept 1.3 states, about 5,000 years ago, urban societies developed laying the foundations for the first civilizations. The term civilization is normally used to designate large societies with cities and powerful states. While there were many differences between civilizations, they also shared important features. They all produced agricultural surpluses that permitted significant specialization of labor. All civilizations contained cities and generated complex institutions, including political bureaucracies, armies, and religious hierarchies. They also featured clearly stratified social hierarchies and organized long-distance trading relationships. Economic exchanges intensified within and between civilizations, as well as with nomadic pastoralists. As populations grew, competition for surplus resources, especially food, led to greater social stratification, specialization of labor, increased trade, more complex systems of government and religion, and the development of record-keeping. As civilizations expanded, people had to balance their need for more resources with environmental constraints. Finally, the accumulation of wealth in settled communities spurred warfare between communities and or with pastoralists. This violence drove the development of new technologies of war and urban defense. So for Key Concept 1.3, I'm going to overlap a little bit with Episode 2, where we had last left off, and that was with the concept of civilization which is going to be found on about page 16 of your textbooks. And if you remember, what we had talked about was that civilization is this contested definition. Uh, what, What exactly does it include? What exactly does it not include? And going to leave you guys on a little bit of a cliffhanger with that, because that is something that we're going to explore in class. So I don't want to let the cat out of the bag in this episode. That would be way too easy for you. And, You'll come to find out I like to keep things a little bit interesting with you guys in the classroom. So I do want you guys to understand, at least at this point in time, that civilization is not a commonly agreed upon thing. And and it does get brought up with these earliest groups of sedentary agricultural societies. But 
that concept of civilization will will be coming back, especially as we find ourselves in the 19th century in history. And we're talking about what's known as the age of imperialism, in which European Western um, peoples are going around the world uh, to the quote unquote savage peoples and bring to them again, quote unquote, civilization. And it's just this really, really tricky thing that that we struggle to define. But what is agreed upon, we should establish, is that these people uh, have a surplus of food. They therefore can have a division of labor. Usually they're going to have some type of writing system. Um, But beyond that, there are a few more things that we could get into. Again, trying to keep a little bit of a lid on this whole topic because we'll bring it up in class. But but there's a lot of that can be contested in this. And what I want you guys to consider right now is just think about these questions. What exactly does it mean to be civilized? Who is the group of people that get to define what is civilization and what is not civilization? And how can such a seemingly small thing as the label of civilization have long-term historical implications because it, it doesn't sound like a big deal just throwing in this word civilization but there's a lot of power that comes with being able to throw that word around and being taken as a source of authority when you throw that term around is even more dangerous um you know for instance when, when we draw people in cartoons you'll see some get some people get to be labeled as looking human and others are looking inhuman and when we deprive people of their humanity or civility whether it's in something in a cartoon or in conversation by attaching these derogatory labels to them we're unconsciously looking down upon them without even thinking twice about it so again that's all i'm really going to say about this whole concept of civilization at face value at least at this point because again it's something that we'll bring up a little bit later on in class So what your textbook then does is, you guys will see on page 18, goes through a couple of different early River Valley civilizations and kind of just gives you a a brief overview of them, starting with the Tigris-Euphrates civilization, moving on to the Egyptian civilization, and then kind of giving you a little bit of a combination Indian and Chinese River Valley civilizations before then talking about what it is that is the legacy of these different civilizations. And so the, the thing is, is you guys have to understand I could give all of these different civilizations all this attention, or I could focus in on one and allow you guys to see the patterns and recognize them then in the other groups of people. And that's exactly what we're going to do is that. We're going to focus on the Tigris-Euphrates civilization, and then we're going to help you guys realize how you can pull those themes out of the Tigris-Euphrates civilization and recognize them in the others mentioned throughout this chapter. So what your book goes on to talk about is just, you know, some precedents that are established by the Tigris-Euphrates civilization. Of course, we're talking here about ancient Sumer and the Akkadians and the Babylonians and the Assyrians. Um, But it really starts with the Sumerians. And what comes from them is going to be the development of writing systems, of law codes, of city planning and architecture, um, and of institutions of exchanges, of trade. And again, these are things that a civilization is able to possess because, simply put, it has a surplus of agriculture. 
not everyone has to concern themselves with finding their own source of food. It is provided for them by those agriculturalists so others can then focus on other professions or other areas of expertise. And, you know, I'm not going to mention everything your book mentions about them. I'm going to kind of jump around here and, and zero in on a couple of things that really connect with the key concepts because some things are really obvious in your book and they don't need further clarification. But one thing that I wanted to point out to you is uh, the ziggurats, the first piece of monumental architecture, <coughs> excuse me, architecture that emerges among civilized people. And I, I want you guys to see that there's some themes of civilization that come from something like a ziggurat. And the first thing is going to be construction projects such as these require surplus labor to be mobilized. You can't just have a family build this in a reasonable amount of time. You need to have access to a large quantity of people who you can have undertake this project for you. And the interesting thing about Sumer versus um, perhaps China or Egypt is that these large-scale projects, whether it's the ziggurats or an irrigation system or a defensive wall, are going to be organized by the strongmen um, as opposed to the priestly class. Those are two different groups of people. And what that does, and these two groups co cooperate, of course, but what that does is it creates a separation between the religious uh, features of daily life and then the political features of daily life. And in others, the people who are connecting you with the gods are the same people that are having you undertake these large-scale construction projects. So those, those things are intertwined. And in Sumer, it's not necessarily. So that's the first thing, is that it requires a mobilization of surplus labor. The second thing is just, you know, optics. It's the way things look. Uh, it's the way things are performed that reinforce these unspoken, unconscious things that we're not aware of. Uh, ziggurats, maybe you've seen them before, maybe not, but they're like these big stepped pyramid buildings. They're pyramid shaped, but they're not the same as the Great Pyramids you're maybe familiar with in Egypt. Um, much larger levels, but again, same shape comes to the top. Now, these ziggurats are solid. There's no internal caverns or anything. The important stuff happens on the outside of it. And what happens on the outside of it is the priests will ascend to the top and make the sacrifices or the offerings to the gods in order to be secured protection from outside invaders or maybe for a bountiful harvest in the coming year because it's believed that these priests have access to those gods that can provide those services. But also think about it. By going up to the top of that ziggurat, you are enforcing this notion that that priest is above everyone else, both physically and socially, and they have more power. And there again is you're starting to see that feature of civilization, the establishment of hierarchies, those who have the power and authority in society and those who lack the power and authority in their society. And so another thing to think about when you're looking at the ancient Sumerians is their geography. Um, the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers flood annually, but those floods come fast and they're not necessarily predictable. And that can lead to some serious destruction. 
that affects the way people look at the world around them. Uh, and you'll see how that can affect them compared to the way the Nile floods and then how the Egyptians look at society. And another thing that you need to understand is the, the, the basic geography, the, the terrain uh, of the Tigris-Euphrates area. It is very easy to invade. Um, not a lot of geographic barriers to the area. Whereas for Egypt, there's a lot of desert. Um, it, it's located across a narrow peninsula called the Sinai from the other civilizations. A little bit more difficult. And so Sumer, in, in times of war, like I said earlier, is going to turn to these strong men to lead the military in battles against foreign invaders. And they're going to fight against each other due to being city-states. There's going to be a lot of competition for power and authority, which allows for some outsiders like someone such as Sargon of Akkad, who's, who's located from north of the Sumerian city-states, to conquer them and establish his own empire. And then again, it's not like Sargon just constructs these mountains or these impassable rivers, right? The Tigris-Euphrates civilization, their geography is their geography. They did not erect a wall to protect themselves from outsiders. Uh, so you're going to get invaders coming again from that northern area, especially nomadic people. Um, you know, the Babylonian Empire that will emerge after the Akkadians, they are originally nomadic. And they are going to move in on Sumerian farmlands, or they're going to move in, I guess, at that point, the Akkadian farmlands, and help expand their base of resources, and therefore their base of supply, and therefore that allows for their military to become stronger and operate more efficiently. And so from those Babylonians, we're going to get good old Hammurabi. We know him, the old eye for an eye guy. You take his eye, he's going to snatch yours right back from you. Um, but in all seriousness, there's just this constant competition of power in Mesopotamia because the geography flat out allows for it. One group, though, that's going to really um, start to emerge and set themselves apart from the rest are going to be this group called the Hittites. And why the Hittites have an advantage is because they have access to a good that no one else does at this time, and, and a way to make this good into something very useful, and that is going to be iron. Iron is huge at this point in history. Now, we do have bronze weapons, we do have bronze tools, but it's expensive, it's a pretty difficult substance to come across, and, and iron is not expensive, and it is not difficult necessarily to come across. When the Hittites have it, though, they keep their technology and their skill work with that technology iron tight. Um, you see what I did there? What they're going to do, though, is master this technology, and they're going to use it to their advantage to help grow their empire. Now, another group that they'll come into contact with, the Assyrians, are going to interact with them. They are eventually going to learn those iron-making secrets, and through the use of war chariots, composite bows, horseback riding, they are going to be the ones, the Assyrians, that is, who will emerge as the most powerful empire in the region. And that sets up a huge theme for us in this class. You interact with nomadic peoples from the outside, you might pick up a thing or two, as you see with the Assyrians learning from the Hittites iron-making technology. That theme is going to continue throughout. All 
Alright everybody, so we're moving on to part two, which is going to be zooming in. And in this week's feature, or this episode's feature, we're going to be looking at exchanges that are occurring in period one. I'm going to leave that term exchanges a little bit vague to begin with, and then we'll kind of clarify in a little bit. So the first thing I wanted to talk about, your book mentions them, it's the Indo-European migrations. And the Indo-Europeans are going to be people who originated in the steppe region around the Caucasus Mountains, just like modern-day southern Russia, Ukraine, kind of that area. And these people are pastoral, which I explained back in the first episode. Uh, they're using animals to secure their livelihood, and they're going to use those animals both as, both as a source of, of life-giving properties, but also for purposes of warfare, especially horses and the chariots that they'll ride in upon. The interesting thing, though, about the Indo-Europeans is going to be language. Uh, they are going to be the group of people who are going to influence the development of Sanskrit and later on Hindi. Uh, they're going to be the ones who influence the development of the Persian language, of Spanish, of German, and of English. Uh, th their, their influence is going to be very far and wide throughout Eurasia, and that influence is going to be seen especially through certain words. For instance, if you look at the word mother, I'm not going to go through the pronunciations of all of them in the different languages because I will butcher them all guaranteed, but you would see um, there's a lot of similarities in the way that word for mother is pronounced between the languages. And it's not certain why these people migrated originally, but they do spread throughout Eurasia. Uh, the Hittites are considered to be um, related to the Indo-Europeans, as are the Aryans of South Asia and modern-day India. And they've even been found to have migrated into the British Isles and throughout Eastern Europe. And so that we're talking there is going to be the exchanges of people. But I also want to talk about the exchange of resources. And there's a couple of different trade networks at this time that are popular, and that's going to be ones centering usually around Mesopotamia. There's the Egypt to Mesopotamia trade route. There's going to be Egypt and into Nubia, located south of Egypt, and then Mesopotamia into the Indus River Valley, while the Chinese are going to remain a little bit more isolated from all of this. But trade's really important. Uh, look at the Mesopotamians. that They lack materials to produce metals. They lack timber, so they're going to trade with people of the Indus River Valley and the Nile River Valley to access these goods. The Egyptians, uh, they're going to be trading with the Nubians to the south for things like ivory and gold and slaves. And so you can see some of the goods I mentioned have a practical value, but others are really for no other purpose than just adorning those people who have the money to buy them. Who would have thought? People buy things just because they look sweet. So material transfers, you know, like the goods we have just mentioned here, they're going to lead to cultural transfers as well. And you'll see this when you talk about trade between Egypt and the people on the island of Crete known as the Minoans, who are going to later influence the Greeks. Those Minoans, they're going to adopt a written language that's going to be heavily influenced by hieroglyphics. And the Nubians, south of the Egyptians, they're going to be developing the use of pyramids as burial tombs after their interactions with the Egyptians. Uh, another group called the Phoenicians, mentioned by your textbook, they're going to be the most influential traders throughout the Mediterranean 
around about 11 BCE on for a long time, their alphabet is going to influence the Greeks and from the Greeks on and on and on to where we can trace our modern day alphabet back to the Phoenicians. And so that's a key thing. You know, when we talk about trade, it's not just the exchange of goods. Of course, that's what starts it. But from there, it's the exchange of ideas and the exchange of beliefs and the exchange of disease sometimes. You'll find out about that soon enough. So for today's explainer, I just wanted to touch on this. Uh, I'm really done giving you information in this episode. So now you might be thinking, you know, what about China? You didn't talk about that much. What about India? Um, What about religion? Religion we'll get to in period two, more than period one. And you'll see that. And we'll step back a little bit and set up some things. But for early China and for early India, what I would advise you to do is to take Mesopotamia and what we've talked about in today's episode and compare those developments with what's going on in China or with what's going on in India and find out where do the similarities lie and where do the differences lie and most importantly, the analysis. Why do those similarities exist or why do those differences exist between them? But at the end of the day, the key thing here is stick to the key concepts. What I tried to focus on in today's episode was what you need to understand about Mesopotamia in regards to key concept 1.3. So go back, look over that key concept and ask yourself, what are the defining features of India, of China, according to these key concepts? And you're going to make a life a lot easier for yourself. It is not about understanding every single word in your textbook. It is about taking your textbook and understanding how it connects to the curriculum that we're really focusing in on in class. And that's exactly the point of this podcast, to help you guys understand it, but also develop the skills to be able to do that on your own. So my recommendation for you guys today is going to be a resource that is called the Ancient History Encyclopedia. Uh, This source is just absolutely phenomenal. And to be honest with you, helped inform me on a lot of things that I needed to brush up on or flat out learn about the ancient world because there's just so much out there. And the Ancient History Encyclopedia, which is just ancient.eu, so you had access that, it allows you to search by topics. It allows you to search via a timeline. There are maps of the ancient world. There's a store if you need some ancient history gear or merch because I know you're just scratching for that right now. Um, but really it is just very well done. And I think the most important thing that you guys need to understand about this is that there is a board of directors who all have history credentials. Uh, this has been recommended by places like Oxford university, Michigan state, the university of Minnesota. So you big 10 lovers of Penn state, you guys aren't on there, but some pretty credible scores schools are, um, it's just great in terms of providing resources, verified resources, whether it's videos, images, audio articles, written articles. 
It provides a lot of things, a lot of resources. It is a great starting point if you're beginning a research project or just getting into more detail about something you have a particular interest in. So again, that's the Ancient History Encyclopedia, and you'll find that at www.ancient.eu. Well, that about wraps it up for today. So that's your look at the early civilizations. And again, like I said at the start of the episode, that is the end of period one. So what we'll move on to next is going to be period two, where we start to see some larger empires build. We'll get into the ancient Greeks, the ancient Romans, the Persians, Han China, uh, the Guptas and the Maryas of India. And we'll really start to see how do these people set themselves apart from these early River Valley civilizations that we've talked about here. So that is all for now. Take care, everybody.